Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Colossians chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. Uh, Utilize that resource at the beginning of the Bible to find your way to Colossians chapter 3. And if you're new to the Hallows Church, I want you to know that we are a Jesus-loving, Bible-teaching, city-serving family of faith, and that our desire is to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. What that means for us as a faith family is that we want our relationship with God to be gospel-saturated, meaning our enjoyment of God, our engagement of God, our hope in God, it's utterly dependent upon his kindness, his grace, his goodness towards us in Jesus. But that also means that we want our relationships with one another to be gospel-saturated, meaning we want to approach one another in humble, other-oriented ways. We want to reflect the character of Christ to each other and how we love one another and serve one another, how we consider each other more significant than ourselves. And we are all approaching each other in that capacity. But then what that also means is that we want our relationship with the city in which we live to be gospel-saturated. That means that we love where we live, and we want to be a blessing to the city in which God has placed us for as long as we are here. We want to engage the city in ways that reflect Jesus' compassionate concern for the city. We want to engage the city in ways that reflects the redemptive reign and the redemptive rule of King Jesus. We want all of our relationships to be gospel-saturated relationships. And so this afternoon, we're going to start a new series titled Gospel Saturated. It's fitting, right? That's where we're going over the next few weeks. And and I want us to begin by considering how the resurrection of Jesus empowers us to live gospel-saturated lives characterized by passion, characterized by purpose, characterized by promise. And so if you would, let me pray for us one more time before we dive into this this afternoon's passage and move in that direction. Heavenly Father, once again, we want to thank you for sending your son Jesus to live and die and to rise again. Thank you for claiming us as your own, and we know you desire to claim many, many, many more men and women all throughout this city as your own, and I pray that by your grace you would do that. I pray that as we approach your scriptures over these next few moments that you would open up our hearts to receive what you have in store for us from this passage, and would you open up our hearts to respond gladly to that which you would have us learn and that which you would have us hear this afternoon. I pray that the resurrection of Jesus would empower us to live gospel-saturated lives and would you show us and instruct us and inform us on how that can happen. Lord, we ask and we pray all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think sometimes people... um, As we kind of journey through this world, there's a temptation and a tendency in people's lives to want to kind of try on Jesus, just kind of add him on to our lives as just another layer, perhaps approach him kind of like a a spiritual accessory. You know, as people are kind of journeying through this world and they are dealing with the complexities of life in a fallen world and they're searching for life and they're searching for meaning, they're searching for passion, they're searching for purpose. A lot of times that, that search, especially in our culture, will lead people to try on Jesus. And they'll, they'll think, well, maybe Jesus is the solution to all of this. And so I'll just kind of layer him on top of my life and, and see how it goes. And so they might kind of put Jesus on their life 
kind of like wearing an Easter tie, you know, just kind of wrap it around our neck for a little while, but eventually, perhaps in our minds, that, that tie goes out of style. Maybe people aren't complimenting the tie as much as they once did, and as time goes on and the more, the more life happens and the more perhaps difficult or challenging life might get, and we then take Jesus off and we just kind of put him in a drawer and we look for another spiritual accessory to help us make sense of life in a fallen world and help us to navigate the waters of a complex life in a broken, fallen environment. And so we have this tendency and this temptation to want to treat Jesus as a type of accessory. But I want you to know that a gospel-saturated life recognizes that Jesus isn't someone that we simply temporarily add on top of the lives that we are already living. The gospel-saturated life is a life that recognizes that Jesus intends to invade your life, and he intends to establish himself at the centerpiece, at the core of who you are. He is to be embedded permanently deep within your heart, deep within your soul, deep within your identity. You see, a gospel-saturated life is a lot like, is more like Spider-Man than Batman. You know the difference between Spider-Man and Batman, right? Batman's superpowers, the, the life that he's living is tied to his accessories. He wears a fancy utility belt purchased by his privilege to do all the things that he's doing, but he takes that belt off and he's powerless, There's not much going on in Batman apart from his utility belt. But Spider-Man's power doesn't come that way. It's not an accessory. It's not something layered on top of his life. Spider-Man's power comes from another source, right? Spider-Man's power is a part of his new nature. You know that Spider-Man was bitten by a radioactive spider, and that changed everything. And when that spider kind of injected himself into Spider-Man's DNA, all of a sudden things begin to change within that kid. As his power comes from something that was taken into his body, and it transformed his inner self. It gave him a new nature, so to speak. It enabled Spider-Man to become more than what he actually was in that moment. But a gospel-saturated life is one, in a sense, where we've been bitten by the gospel of grace. Where God's unmerited love and his unmerited kindness and his unmerited goodness has injected itself into our souls. And it has given us a new nature. It has caused our hearts to come alive. It is transforming us from the inside out. Giving us a new inner self that is producing much change and much passion and much purpose. Much perspective in our lives as we are journeying through this world. Of course, we're not like Spider-Man. We're not people who become more than human. We are people who, because this is going down in our lives, we are actually becoming human. As when Jesus injects himself into our lives and the gospel begins to saturate our souls, changing the core of who we are, suddenly we are empowered to become the people God originally created and intended us to be. And so you want to hold this in your mind as you step into Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, because that's, this is precisely what this passage is getting after. If you look at the top of perhaps your Bible, just above verse 1 of chapter 3, there's usually a heading that's been inserted there to kind of summarize that portion of the scriptures. And your Bibles may read on that, on that part, uh, the life of the new man or the life of the new person. We might also say that that heading could read the, the gospel-saturated life, the life of the person who's been in, infected with the gospel, whom Christ has inserted himself into their lives and he's establishing himself permanently in the core of a person's identity, giving them a new inner self that is being transformed and renewed more 
uh, day by day as time rolls on. And so this is essentially what this passage is about, which is why we're going to take the next few weeks to walk through Colossians chapter 3, talking about this gospel-saturated life. And notice how it begins, because the, the passage begins remarkably. I mean, Paul writes the opening phrase. He says, so if you have been raised with Christ, essentially he's saying, if you are a Christian, if you are someone who's taken the gospel into your life, he's reminding you are someone who's been raised with Christ, saying that a Christian is essentially someone who's experienced a type of resurrection. We've experienced a type of resurrection before we even physically died in this world. It's a spiritual resurrection, that a Christian has been spiritually resurrected by the gospel. And you read that phrase, and you can't help but think about some of the other descriptions that the Bible gives to us. And on one hand, the scriptures oftentimes describe us before we meet Jesus as being spiritually dead, that there was a time when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Although we were biologically alive, spiritually we were dead. But then there came that day when we heard the gospel. We heard the good news about Jesus. We were told the story of how Jesus entered this world and he lived a perfect life of obedience. That Jesus lived his life loving his father with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength, which is what obedience is about. He loved God completely. Every moment of every day. But not only did he love God completely, he loved people compassionately. He loved his neighbor as his neighbors, as himself. He treated them with compassion. He treated them with a dignity. He approached them with the truth of his kingdom. He loved people purely. And as a result, he lived a perfect life. Every moment of every day, perfectly loving God, perfectly loving people. So that suddenly when he comes to the end of his life and ministry in this world and he goes to the cross, his death matters. His death means something that nobody else's death in the entire world had ever, had ever meant before. He, he would go to the cross and he would die there as a sacrifice of atonement, giving his perfect life for our imperfect lives. And he would die in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. But you know that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just stay dead. That two nights later, three days, Resurrection Sunday came. And Jesus stepped out of the tomb, resurrected in his glorified body. At some point in time, that story was communicated to you and your heart awakened in response to it. And when that happened, you experienced a spiritual resurrection. You were given a new life. The, the gospel has produced change in us. Knowing that his sacrificial love and his service towards us in his life, death, and resurrection, that has, that has radically revolutionized our soul. It's been permanently embedded into the core of every Christian's identity. The problem is not many Christians are aware of it. We're not aware of that identity. We're not aware of who we are as a result of what Christ has done. But this is what Paul's reminding us of. He's saying, so if you have been raised with Christ, and when he says that, it's understand that that verse, that phrase is the positive corollary to something Paul says earlier in, in Colossians chapter 2. So if you jump up to verse 12 in Colossians chapter 2, you'll read kind of the other side of this. It says, there was a time when you were buried with Christ in baptism. So when you become a Christian, you, you were buried. In a sense, you died to yourself. So that when Christ died, 
you died. And then when Christ was raised, you were raised. That's the rhythm of becoming a Christian, dying to self, being raised to walk in newness of life. This is why Christians practice baptism the way that we do. This is why this morning in West Seattle, we had the privilege of celebrating the baptism of a guy named Paul. And Paul stepped into the baptistry with me, and I had the opportunity to hear his story, and he shared his story with everybody there. And, and I got in the waters with him, and, and we talked about this dynamic of being buried with Christ and being raised to walk in newness of life. The reason we practice baptism the way that we do is because we want to illustrate that reality. That baptism serves as a living illustration of this gospel reality, of this transformation, of this new life that that you and I have been swept up into as a result of the gospel. And you think about that and you you begin to realize what the essence of Christianity is, right? You see, the essence of Christianity isn't imitating Jesus. The essence of Christianity isn't obeying Jesus. The essence of Christianity isn't even loving Jesus. The essence of Christianity is being spiritually united with Christ. That's the core of the Christian identity. You are someone who's been united with Christ. You have spiritual solidarity with King Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that is a mind-blowing identity. It's one that Paul communicates here in Colossians chapter 3. It's one that he talks about in other passages in the New Testament as well. Some of those you read earlier during the reflections. I'll share them with you again. Ephesians chapter 2. Just listen to the language. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you were saved by grace. Get this. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the, he- in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 6. Same language. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we ha- will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. The essence of the the Christian identity is sinners like you and I being by grace grafted in and given spiritual solidarity with our Savior. We've been united with Christ. Therefore, his life becomes your life. His death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. This is what goes down in the soul when a person becomes a Christian. And just think about the the magnitude of that. What I'm saying is that what, what is true of Jesus is right now in real time true of you. And that's true regardless of how you feel about yourself in this given moment. Some of you walked in here this afternoon beating yourself up. Some of you walked in this room this afternoon under the shadow of shame. Some of you are wrestling through some some terrible struggles and sufferings in your life right now. And you're wondering if you have any value. You wonder if you have any dignity. You're wondering what God thinks of you. And I just want to tell you that God thinks of you the same way he thinks of his son, Jesus. That's what it means to have unity with Christ, that spiritual union of being buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. 
So you see this in verse 1. So if you have been raised with Christ, but then he goes on, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So not only does, Jesus, does God, that what is true of Jesus is true of us, that also means that where Jesus is, we are too. So if Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, spiritually speaking, there's a sense in which you and I are right now seated at the right hand of God. Do you understand what that means? That that means you now have fellowship with God. You now have the ear of God. You are now in the place of pleasure with God. In Psalm 1611, we are told that at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. This means that you have the opportunity to enjoy God in this world right now. You can fellowship with him. You can commune with him. You can talk with him. You can engage him. This is where Jesus is, and essentially that's where we are too. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 told us, right? Ephesians chapter 2 said, He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus right now. It's a remarkable thing to be a follower of Jesus. It's a remarkable thing to believe the gospel. In many ways, believing the gospel and some of the implications of it, it's too good to be true. And some of you perhaps have a hard time believing this is true of you. You can't believe that something so good could be true about who you are. You have a hard time believing that when God looks at you, he sees you the same way he sees his son Jesus. And if you're struggling with that this afternoon, let me just encourage you to try to believe it. Just try to believe it. Just let your mind ponder it for a while. Let let your mind meditate upon it for a while. Take these passages of Scripture in faith and try to believe these, these remarkable realities. That we have been united with Christ. And when we are united with Christ, we, you begin to see as you look back at Colossians chapter 3 that our lives get elevated. We begin to live elevated lives. All of a sudden, our present pursuits and our present passions and our present purpose begins to change. It begins to ignite. Notice what he says next in verse 2. He says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Saying your life is elevated. So let your mind go there. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And when he says mind in verse 2, understand that when Paul uses the language of mind or heart, which he does in verse 1 in some translations, uh, set your heart on things above, set your minds on things above, he's essentially talking about the same thing. Heart and mind are interchangeable in Paul's writings. And so basically what he's getting after is that because we have been united with Christ, we now have the opportunity to live according to the passions and priorities of heaven right now. We can live according to the passions and the priorities of heaven right here on earth in this moment. Why else do you think when the disciples walked up to Jesus and they asked him the question, hey, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? We hear you talking to the Father, and it seems like you have so much intimacy with him. You have so much insight into what the Father is doing in a given moment. The disciples wanted in on that, so they came and said, would you teach us to pray? And Jesus obliged. He taught them. He said, okay, well, when you pray, I want you to pray like this. First of all, I want you to pray by saying, our Father in heaven. I want you to address God as your Father. That's where prayer begins. This is the type of fellowship followers of Jesus have with God. He's not just our creator, he's our father. So he tells his disciples, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And yes, that's where our name comes from. 
It did not come from Harry Potter. It came from the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. But then right after that, he tells his disciples, now, I want you to say, I want you to pray, let let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, I want you to pray heaven down into the world right now. And when Paul, when Paul is saying, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, he's essentially saying, this is how that prayer is answered. How are the passions and priorities of heaven realized in the world right now? Well, they are realized through the lives lived by gospel-saturated disciples. Those who are swept up in the reality of who they are in Christ and they begin to live out the passions and priorities of the kingdom of God. In other words, we begin to live elevated lives. We begin to live heaven down, not earth up. And there's a big difference between those two. This is why as followers of Jesus, what do we elevate? Well, we elevate things like giving above getting. We elevate things like Forgiving over avenging. We elevate things like serving over ruling. We elevate things like loving above hating. We, we begin to elevate the things of God. We begin to live heaven down, showing the world what life looks like when Jesus is in charge, when Jesus is at the core of a person's identity. This is what life looks like. This is what it means to set our minds on things above. It is to live heaven down. It is to carry out the passions, the priorities, the perspectives of heaven. But this is a challenging thing for us because you know as well as I do, as great as all this sounds, it can be at times difficult to carry forward. It does seem like there's friction in our lives. There's tension in our lives as a result of this. This identity isn't seamlessly or smoothly carried out in our lives on a regular basis. And I think one of the reasons why that is so is because we're oftentimes tempted. We're oftentimes tempted, instead of of living heaven down, we're oftentimes tempted to live earth up. We're often tempted to make heaven out of earth rather than earth out of heaven. We begin to set our minds, our hearts, our life on earthly things. We begin to find life in aspects of the created order, and we begin to draw life from that which God created, and and we do so in a way that elevates the created things of this world above the creator. And our lives are no no longer centered on who Christ is and what Christ wants to be for us. Our life becomes centered on so many other things. We Make heaven out of earth rather than earth out of heaven. And this can happen with all types of things. It can happen with good things and bad things, with material things and immaterial things. It happens every time we kind of attach our lives to some things that it gets to the point where we feel like if we ever lose this or we ever lose that or if we ever lose the other, if we ever lose it, then we're going to lose our lives. We're making heaven out of earth when we ever get to that spot. You can think about some of the things that we do this with. We do this with our jobs, right? We set our mind on things below. We set our mind on earthly things by becoming so preoccupied with our careers, so preoccupied with our ambitions, so preoccupied with our careers. We do this with money. We do this with status. We do this with hobbies and education recreation. We do this a lot with the approval of others. We try to make heaven out of earth 
by gaining the applause and the approval of every person in our lives. And if anyone ever criticizes us, when we're drawing life from them, we just fall apart. We can't handle it. This happens every time these types of things begin to consume our mind's attention and our heart's affections. And it's not hard to discern when this occurs. It's not hard to discern when you've set your mind on earthly things and you're making heaven out of earth. It happens anytime you see one of these things being threatened. And when they are threatened, how your heart responds in that moment. When anything like this is threatened in your life, they, it often gives birth to negative emotions, intensely negative emotions, emotions. So instead of just getting angry about something, you get bitter about something. Instead of just being sad about something that you lose or something that doesn't go your way in this world, you become, you start despairing over it. Instead of living with a with a little bit of fear in your life about losing this or losing that or losing the, the, all the other, all of a sudden, when whatever you're drawing your life from is under attack, when it is being threatened, you're not just afraid, you're paralyzed. And these intensely negative emotions just swell up in our hearts and they swell up in our minds. And when they do, chances are that's because we're trying to make heaven out of earth. And these intensely negative emotions flare up revealing that we've set our mind on earthly things. We're making heaven out of earth. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of Jennifer Lawrence. She's an actress that seems to be on just about every movie nowadays. She's always advertising something, marketing something. She's just all over the place. Well, she's also someone who, um, in an interview about three or four years ago, she expressed her struggles with anxiety and her struggles with, with depression and really wrestling through some things. And I think when we hear kind of some of the things that she says in the interview, you can see what can go sideways when we start making heaven out of earth, when we set our minds on earthly things. Just listen to how she describes her life. She said back in 2014 that in middle school, there are all these peers judging you, and you're never good enough, never wearing the right outfit, saying the right thing. I want everyone to like me. Who doesn't? Then you grow up and become famous, and it's the same thing multiplied a billion times. And then later she, was, she talks about watching a, a TV program where she's being interviewed. And as she was watching it take place, in light of those thoughts that she was having, she, she had a full-fledged panic attack. And listen to what she says as to why. She said, all of a sudden, it was like being hit by a train. The realization of how many people are looking at me, how many opinions there are. Just thinking about that just overwhelmed her in that moment and it caused her heart to her heart rate to increase and she began to panic over the opinions and the assessments and the judgments of the world that was surrounding her it's pretty overwhelming to think about but it's a, it's illustrative of the fact that anytime we make heaven out of earth our lives become vulnerable anytime we make heaven out of earth our lives are exposed anytime we make heaven out of earth our lives are insecure because when we're making heaven out of earth, we're making heaven out of something that can fall apart, something that can unravel, something that is merely temporary. And so when we move in that direction, we find ourselves in a difficult spot. And this is where we want to come back to Colossians chapter 3 and see the glory of what Paul says next. Hear the reminder of the Christian identity of, of who we are right now. And we come back to our center and we consider this reality that he articulates in verse 3. 
He says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Saying, don't forget, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's a powerful image. There's a reason why in my house right now we've banned the game hide and seek. We've had to bar it from my house because my two-year-old daughter, Adeline, is too good at it. When she hides, her mom and I have a, we're tempted to have a panic attack because we can never find her. She's not like my other two kids. My other two kids, when we would play that game, if you got close to where they are, they would start giggling and laughing, not Adeline. Adeline is too stubborn. She's too competitive. And so when we would play this game, she'd go find a spot in the house, most random, bizarre spots, and, and it, she would assume the same posture every time. She, she would get into her hiding spot, and she'd close her eyes really tight, clench her fists, and just stand here like this, not making a sound for minutes. And five minutes is a long time to look for a two-year-old. And so when, my, when Kim and I decided we, we can't keep putting ourselves through this every time, we just got to quit playing this game because when she's hidden, she cannot be found. Do you understand what Paul is saying in verse 3 when he says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God? He's saying your life is now in a secure place. He's saying your life is now in a place where if Satan ever comes and accuses you, think, seeking to condemn you, he can't find you. It means that when death threatens you, death can't ultimately find you because your life is hidden with Christ in God. It means when the world judges you and people assess your life and they say there's no way you're going to amount to anything. There's no way you're, you're going to find value for yourself in this world. There's no way you are lovable. There's no way you can be cherished and embraced and accepted by the holy God. When the world begins to judge and assess you in different ways, you remember the fact that you are hidden in God. And so when the world comes looking for you, it ultimately cannot find you. There's unbelievable security, unbelievable freedom of knowing we are right now hidden with Christ in God. It's the same type of dynamic that Jesus would talk about in John chapter 10. John 10 verse 28, I give them, referring to his disciples, referring to sinners like you and me who have believed in Jesus and we're trusting in his gospel. He's saying, look, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Don't you love that? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Do you understand that you are hidden in the vice grip of God Almighty? And as you are hidden in his grip, nobody can separate you from the God who created you, from the God who's redeeming you in Christ, the God who's hidden you in his Son. We have died and our lives are now hidden with Christ. And so when Satan comes to accuse us, when sin seeks to condemn us, when the world seeks to judge us, ultimately they cannot find us because we are hidden, safe and secure in Christ. Now that's one dynamic of what it means to be hidden with Christ in God. But there's another aspect to it. Not only does that image speak to our security, that image also speaks to this idea of concealment, that there is a temporary concealment right now that every Christian is going in. Meaning, when the world looks at you, they don't see you as glorious as God sees you. It's not unlike what Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, where he talks about you and I being given a treasure. And he compares the gospel to this treasure, this, the greatest reality in the universe. And he says that this treasure, this gospel has been inserted, it's been concealed where? In jars of clay. 
meaning the content is far more glorious than the package. That the gospel has been put into frail, fragile, deteriorating, imperfect people like you and me. And so when the world looks at us, the world doesn't see the Christian as glorious as God sees the Christian. But this is exactly who we are because our lives have been hidden with Christ in God. There is far more glory in us than anybody can dare see in the present time. That glory is currently concealed. That glory is currently hidden. This is why. This is why when you think about, you think about your who you are and who you are becoming, understand that when the gospel is injected into your soul and Jesus begins to occupy the core of who you are, determining your identity, you begin a process whereby you are not practically and fully your true self, but you are becoming your true self. That you are your true self, but you're also your true self with sin. You're also your true self with struggle. You're also your true self with frailty. And your body's breaking down. The package isn't that glorious. The older I get, the more I realize that. But there's still a treasure. There's still glory that's concealed in me. And notice what he says in verse 4. He's saying, don't forget that the glory that's been placed in you, that glory one day will be fully revealed. It will be fully realized. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, when he appears, get this, then in that moment, you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ appears, when Christ, who is our life, shows up, we too will show up. And we too will be with him in glory. Do you understand what will happen in that moment? When that happens, when our salvation is fully realized, all of a sudden the verdict of eternity is going to reverse the verdict of time. The judgment of God is going to reverse all the judgments of this world. And what is true of you is going to show up and show out. What is true of you as it relates to your inner self will be shown up in your outer self. Your body will will match your soul. The box will match the content or the package. You see, this is exactly what happened with Jesus in his resurrection. Think about Jesus' resurrection. You think about what happened on Good Friday. On Good Friday, the verdict of this world was set. And what was the world's verdict of Jesus? We don't want you. We don't love you. Crucify him. Crucify him. Let's kill Jesus. That was the world's assessment. That was the world's verdict on Jesus. But what was God's verdict on Jesus? His verdict came out on resurrection day, right? His verdict came out and said, I am pleased with my son. I love my son. And he told his son to get up out of the grave. And Jesus was resurrected in that moment. The verdict of God was flipping the script on the verdict of the world. And this is essentially what will happen to every single follower of Jesus. Every single person who's trusting in the gospel. One day the verdict of God is going to reverse the verdicts and the judgments of this world. And that is a remarkable reality that we get to live towards. That we get to live in light of. That we can allow to refresh our souls time and time and time again. This is who we are as followers. Followers of Jesus. So when Jesus stepped out of the tomb, he stepped out of his tomb in his glorified body. And scriptures would tell us that his glorified body represented the first fruit or the first installment of what was to come. And as Jesus lived for a little while in his resurrected body on earth, eventually he returned to his father and he took his seat at the right hand of his father's throne. 
And there he's waiting for the moment when the father says, okay, go back. Go back and get my people. Go back and make all things new. Go back and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And we are told also in scripture that when Christ returns, those who have died will rise to new life. Those who have died will be given glorified bodies just like Jesus. And we are also told that those who are living when Christ returns, when he appears, they will be transformed in an instant. Their souls will match their bodies in a flash. That's the glory that is to be revealed. That is the completion of our salvation. That is what our hearts are longing for. We want that day to happen when what is true of us spiritually becomes true of us physically. What is true of our inner self will be true of our outer self and there will be no discontinuity. There will be no tension. There will be no frustration. We will live out who God has saved us to be. That's going to be a good day. When Christ returns, he's going to complete our salvation. A couple of nights ago on Thursday night, we were hanging out with some friends on Monday, Thursday, and we took this time to, to go through a special meal and have a special time where we were teaching our kids kind of what Jesus went through on Thursday before Good Friday, before he was crucified on the cross. And, and if you're familiar with what went down on Passion Week on Thursday, Jesus took his disciples into the upper room and he sat them down and he began to wash their feet. And he would wash their feet saying, I'm here to serve you. Everything that I'm about to do, I'm doing for you. I'm here to serve you. That's the kind of savior I am. And so he's washing the feet of the disciples and and we're trying to teach our kids just about these realities and where we were at and kind of the layout of the room and our kids are just crazy. We couldn't really wash feet so we decided to wash hands. That, That worked better for us. And so everybody in the room, they... They had their hands washed by somebody else. Well, my three-year-old son, Asher, got me. And so Asher brought a little basin of water, and he put it in front of me, and he, he was going to wash my hands to showcase this reality. So I give him my hands. He takes them. He places them in the water, and he begins to rub them a little bit. And there's about two or three kind of rinsings that we did in that moment. And, and he just kind of washed my hands, got, got it started, and then I could see him kind of lose focus. And Jesus, uh, Jesus, then Asher... <laughs> Asher then reached over and he grabbed a towel and he threw the towel at me and says, okay, you finish it. (laughs) And I'm thinking, no, I can't finish this. I'm not supposed to finish. I began to remember, you know, Jesus is a lot better than Asher. (laughs) I love my son, but Jesus is my life, right? Jesus finishes what he starts. When it comes to our salvation, the work that he started in us, he will bring to completion when he returns. There's hope, there's security, there's liberty in knowing that Jesus doesn't get tired of saving his people, that Jesus doesn't get tired of serving his people, that Jesus hasn't gotten tired of doing all the things we need him to do in our lives and for our lives as we wait for him to return and make all things new. When the glory of who we are in our inner self is made known in our outer self and everything is reconciled, everything is harmonized, everything is glorified, that's the day we're looking forward to. That's the day we're looking forward to. And Jesus promises, he promises that day's coming. He's going to complete the work. He's going to complete the work. Let's pray.